Hi, and welcome to the Bipolar Feminist Podcast. This is Nikita Ramkisun, and today's episode is on a feminist analysis of domestic violence. Trigger warning. This episode makes mention of multiple forms of violence and abuse, both physical and psychological, so please listen with care. If you are being abused and need help, please text HELP to 31531 if you're in South Africa. Feminism has been a cornerstone of making domestic violence visible as a social problem, advocating for shelters and refuges, emotional support for women and children, and social change including legal responses to the perpetration of intimate partner abuse. It has centralized gender in analyses of domestic violence. We know that men are the predominant perpetrators of domestic violence and women and children are predominantly the victims. Feminism has been instrumental in exposing domestic violence as part of a range of tactics, including physical, sexual, psychological, financial, social, and even spiritual abuse, used to exercise power and control over women and children. And it is through the advancement of feminism and social work that can lead to practice and policy responses to domestic violence. So the gendered nature of this kind of violence continues to remain central to discussions. While it is clear that there is much ground to make up for feminist theorists around the world, various cultural and political hurdles may exist. There is an absolute necessity for Western feminists to expand their theoretical critiques while presenting a series of co-occurring pitfalls and challenges, and feminism as a global movement continues to contain increasing subdivisions as feminist theory grows to reflect the cultural and international diversity of feminists around the world. Criticisms of Western or white feminism are not unjustified. We know that it has historically ignored women of color and other gendered minorities, such as trans women, and even now only works within the realm of individual success within a capitalist system. And all feminists need to work to change the ways in which white or girl boss feminism works. This includes acknowledging its failings and the willingness to adapt the movement to be led by its most marginalized. In terms of gender-based violence, it's also acknowledging that the resources that are available to many white women are not accessible to women of color, trans women, women with disabilities, and others who have various intersections of oppression. Although domestic violence has been defined in a variety of different ways, and there is no perfect definition, it can be defined as a pattern of behavior in any relationship that is used to gain or maintain power and control over an intimate partner. Abuse is physical, sexual, emotional, economic, psychological, or actions or threat of actions that influence another person. This includes any behaviors that frighten, intimidate, terrorize, manipulate, hurt, humiliate, blame, injure, or wound someone. The UN states that domestic abuse can happen to anyone of any race, age, sexual orientation, religion, or gender. It can occur within a range of relationships, including couples who are married, living together, or dating. Domestic violence affects people of all socioeconomic backgrounds and education levels. While the organization includes all of these parameters, in many places around the world, there is no actual crime that is defined as domestic violence. Rather, offenders are charged with other crimes that are then modified to said to be related to domestic violence. Some examples that are commonly associated with domestic violence are homicide, battery, reckless injury, disorderly conduct, kidnapping, damage to property, and so on. In order to be seen as domestic violence, the abuse must be at least one of the following. Intentional infliction of physical pain, physical injury or illness, intentional impairment of physical condition, sexual assault, or any physical act that may cause the other person to fear forthcoming engagement in the conducts previously listed. 
Likewise, for the crime to be considered domestic, it must occur under one of the following circumstances. An adult person against his or her former current spouse, an adult person against an adult with whom the person currently resides or formerly resided, or an adult person against an adult with whom the person has a child in common. Domestic violence is such an important topic of interest, not only for women, but also for all society as a whole, for the following reasons. First, this topic needs to be addressed because of the fact that it is still incredibly prevalent in today's world. One in three women will experience domestic violence during the course of their lives, and every nine seconds a woman in the US is beaten or assaulted by an intimate partner. Worldwide, 27% of women and girls aged 15 and older have experienced either physical or sexual intimate partner violence, but in South Africa, that figure is a staggering one-third or up to 50%. There are extreme consequences and effects domestic violence can have on the victims. There are three main categories or effects that victims experience. Mental health effects, physical health effects, and work problems. First, women who are victims of domestic violence are at higher risk, in comparison to the general population of women, for certain mental health problems. These problems consist of the following. Substance abuse disorders, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorders or complex post-traumatic stress disorders, sleep disorders, eating disorders, and suicide. Similarly, as victims of domestic violence, women also report a higher incidence of diabetes, irritable bowel syndrome, asthma, headaches, chronic pain, and difficulty sleeping. In addition to the previously listed physical health effects, a more general statement in regards to this topic is that women who have experienced domestic violence are more likely than women who have not experienced it to report their physical health as poor. Lastly, domestic violence also affects work productivity. That is, about half of women who are victims report losing their jobs. Furthermore, most violence that occurs within the workplace is related to domestic violence. Although these three categories certainly are troubling, even more disturbing is physical injury and death, as well as the effect that this type of violence can have on any children who are involved. But these definitions being quite limited has its drawbacks. In fact, it has often presented stumbling blocks for women wanting to seek justice. In 2021, a report by the UN Women's Rights Committee found that South Africa's low levels of prosecution and conviction in domestic violence cases and the frequent failures by the police to serve and enforce protection orders exposed survivors to repeated abuses and resulted in the violation of women's fundamental rights. In a report by the Committee on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, said available evidence indicated that the scale of domestic violence, including femicide, is alarmingly high in South Africa. Many women and girls in South Africa, especially in the rural areas, are victims of harmful practices, including child marriage, abduction for marriage or ukutwala, and polygamy or polygamous unions that often give rise to domestic violence. Those who reported their abuser often did not get the protection they needed. According to official figures, out of the 143,824 requests for protection orders between 2018 and 2019, only 22,211 were granted. And, in many of these cases, the protection order just instructed the abuser to sleep in another room within the same house. The committee highlighted the substantial suffering inflicted on women and girls frequently exposed to domestic violence included sexual violence from a very young age. Many victims described physical violence including rape, battery with objects, kicking and inflicting of burns by their partners who often abused alcohol or drugs, had low self-esteem or had sadistic tendencies, the committee said. Some survivors used drugs to cope with the violence or had attempted to commit suicide. Even after leaving an abusive relationship, many continued to suffer from depression, trauma and anxiety, 
as well as financial repercussions. The report also noted that in many cases, women had been killed by their partners. The committee noted the absence of state-run shelters for women and their children. Even though the domestic violence data and the consequences do reveal that men can be victims, it is women who are overwhelmingly more often the victims, and it is women who are typically more vulnerable to domestic violence than are men. A feminist analysis wants to understand why women are much more vulnerable than men, as well as how gender norms influence the following. Why women and men are differently vulnerable to domestic violence and how their own gendered subjectivity might shape their experiences of this type of violence. In order to make sense of this, a feminist analysis would turn to patriarchy for answers. That is, patriarchy is the cause of the subordinate status that women are subjected to, which equates maleness with being powerful and womanhood with being powerless. In doing so, the subordinate status of women is reinforced through domestic violence. In other words, feminist theory argues the ways in which gender is constructed and the ways in which people are socialized to their gender-specific roles within the patriarchy are responsible for the power imbalances that exist within today's society that influence intimate relationships. This is true because of the fact that masculinity is defined in violent terms, while femininity is defined in much more passive terms. All of this suggests that a feminist approach to domestic violence imbalances arises from the belief that our society dictates that men have the ability and right to control their intimate partners due to the gender inequality that results from patriarchy. Gender-specific violence has been recognized since the 18th century, with the first official reference to femicide appearing in the British legal discourse upon the publication of John Wharton's Law Lexicon in 1848. However, femicide was not developed as a feminist theory until it re-emerged in conjunction with second-wave feminism in the 1970s, when Diana Russell used the term at the International Tribunal on Crimes Against Women in 1977. The femicide framework is highly valuable because it communicates something that language such as murder and homicide cannot. You cannot mobilize against something with no name. In this vein, the theory of femicide brings attention to the patriarchal power structures which impose masculine dominance over the female embodied in social life. The act of femicide intersects with complex economic, cultural and geographical factors, revealing that violence is embedded in patriarchal structures of power. In India, for example, economic factors such as the continued use of the dowry system make it difficult for poorer families to sustain women children. Similarly, in China, the one-child policy has increased male preference. These issues, which intersect with gender, have ultimately manifested in gender-selective abortion and infanticide against girls. Moreover, there is often an intense societal pressure for women to become pregnant or give birth until a male is produced. The health risks associated with repeated pregnancy and birth, as well as violence retribution for the failure to produce a male heir, can result in the femicide of a mother as well as the fetus, or even the infant. With that being said, one might ask how, in fact, gender is constructed and socialized within patriarchy. Kate Millett offers answers to this question. In doing so, there are a great many discussions about the power-structured relationships that allow for one group to have control over another on the basis of sex. That is to say, the relationship that men and women have with one another is one of dominance by men and subordination by women due to the fact we live in a patriarchal society. Domestic violence against women by men is caused by the misuse of power and control within a context of male privilege. Male privilege operates on an individual and societal level to maintain a situation of male dominance where men have power over women and children. Domestic violence by men against women can be seen as a consequence of inequalities between men and women rooted in patriarchal traditions that encourage men to believe that they are entitled to power and control. 
this form of sexual politics, domination and subordination, gains consent from all genders via socialization. In other words, we are socialized to form personalities into what might be considered masculine for men and what might be considered feminine for women. For example, masculinity is defined as being intelligent and forceful. On the other hand, femininity is defined as being passive and docile. Then, societal roles are assigned on the basis of these gendered characteristics of personality. Thus, women are given merely the same roles as animals, reproducing and serving domestically. Men, on the other hand, are given everything else. Therefore, men are seen as superior and women are seen as inferior under this patriarchal society. Taking note of all the socialization that women undergo, it is easy to see how women can come to be seen as weak and powerless under patriarchy when compared to men, creating an imbalance of power. In societies where women are less valued and possess fewer rights, they are inevitably more vulnerable to violence and death. As follows, femicide is not always a result of direct violence. It can take the form of medical and nutritional neglect. Further, historically, spikes in the population of men have been linked to increased societal values and militarism related to dominant gender norms of violent masculinity. Femicide rates can also be directly linked to economic cycles, where women who are paid less or less employed are more likely to be caught in the cycles of violence than women who are economically privileged or independent. More often than not, abusers control every aspect of their victim's life, making it impossible to have a job or financial independence. By controlling access to money, women are left unable to support themselves or their children on their own. They may fear having their children taken away, or if she has an insecure immigration status, may fear being deported, among many other reasons. These views on domestic violence are consistent with many schools of feminist thought, which contend that it is the use of violence that keeps women subjugated in the home and in society as a whole. Crimes such as sexual assault, stalking, marital rape and domestic violence have two key underlying similarities. The perpetrator is most often male, and the victim is more often than not a woman. In addition, all of these crimes serve to exploit and or control the sexual and social freedom of women to have a lifestyle of equality, both inside and outside the home. Since these crimes target women and are most often committed by men, it is easy to see the connection to feminist theory. This theoretical perspective has been used in therapeutic interventions for women, providing a framework and rationale for empowering victims, as well as programs designed for perpetrators, providing psychoeducation on the rights of women and enforcing accountability in the recognition of these rights. Thus, it is from this that the women's movement for equality in the broader society have come to recognize social change needed impacting the responses to domestic violence issues. We know that gender is socialized within today's society. Simone de Beauvoir's 1949 claim that one is not born but rather one becomes a woman through socialization rather than from biology is encompassed by three disciplinary practices that are enforced on people who are born female so that they can become women in society. These three disciplinary practices are producing a body that takes on a certain size and shape. In other words, the ideal feminine body is one that is dangerously thin. Furthermore, the second disciplinary practice is one that encourages certain body gestures or postures, both of which are incredibly different for women than they are for men. For instance, women are restricted in their ability to move or take up space. On the other hand, men are socialized in a way that allows them to move freely and take up as much space as they desire. Think about manspreading. Likewise, women are expected to show deference towards any men in their lives. They must submit and show respect for the men with whom they interact. Lastly, the third disciplinary practice creates an ornamented surface out of one's body. That is, women must ensure that their skin, 
hair and makeup are all exactly perfect and in accordance with the standards that society sets, whereas men are largely not held to the same standards. And note, de Beauvoir's critique of society does not include any of the struggles faced by women of color. Under patriarchy, men and women are socialized into their respective roles of dominant and subordinate. In doing so, the patriarchal culture teaches men that they are able to exert control while also encouraging them to act in whatever way they so please. Because of this, men become vulnerable to perpetuation of domestic violence. When they learn that they are entitled to that control, they will most likely act on this in some way or the other, even if it means being violent. Furthermore, masculinity is defined as forceful, strong and domineering. Men are also vulnerable to perpetuating because it might prove somehow that they are in fact masculine men. On the other hand, the patriarchal culture socializes and teaches women that we are supposed to be subordinate to say because we are taught to be weak, thin and passive. It is because of this that we are vulnerable to being victims of men's violence. Women are never taught to be strong or fight back, but rather to defer to men around us and restrict our own movements. Therefore, if men act in any way that is physically violent, we believe that it is natural for men to act that way. Likewise, we may even believe that we are fulfilling our role as feminine women by accepting the violence that our intimate partners perpetrate. Under patriarchy, all genders literally come to embody these expectations, meaning that violence becomes inscribed on the bodies of men while violation becomes inscribed on the bodies of women. As follows, violence against women can be located within patriarchal economic systems, whereas gender-specific violence against men is typically embedded in masculine hierarchies connected to race and ethnicity. The key strength of gendercide as a theory is its adaptability, which makes it particularly useful in feminist theory. Gendercide can be applied to violence against all genders, including violence against those who don't fall within the binary. Demands for increased funding for shelters, community-based services, greater mental health and economic support for victims, etc. have all correctly been raised. But why are such essential services already not more widely available? Clearly not for the lack of need, nor for any lack of campaigning. The blame lies within the crisis-ridden capitalist system. While big businesses and tax-dodging billionaires have made massive profits, services for working-class women have consistently faced deep cuts. Services that vulnerable people rely on have often been the first to be chopped under austerity. We can't rely on women in power to tackle the issues. Leaders are happy to tweet in support of victims, but their parties are often responsible for the decimation of the already limited services available to women and the decimation of rights available to women, think Roe v. Wade. And then there is a disproportionate amount of domestic violence perpetrated against the LGBTQIA community. Despite the fact that there has been some attempt by organizations such as the UN to address the gendered constructions which condition violence against transgender and queer groups, these efforts have not catalyzed meaningful policy, and this affects all LGBTQIA people. The UN's Age, Gender and Diversity Policy refers to the protection of all persons and to the respect for differences, but no specific reference is made to gender identity or sexuality. Similarly, efforts to incorporate the gendercide framework to the analysis of violence against non-binary groups have been lacking. This is despite a wealth of examples where queer individuals have been the victims of violence in what is known as the biopolitics of disposability. The idea that the socially unruly, so to speak, are disposable. The gendercide of so many queer folk is mostly not planned, but the violence often results in death, including things like medical neglect, lack of investment in police investigations, and the general lack of societal concern because of queer existence being seen as disposable by society at large. 
In a domestic violence relationship or an intimate partner violence relationship, one partner uses a pattern of abusive behavior to gain or maintain power and control over another. A common question about intimate partner violence is why the victims stay. The answer to that is complicated. While it is important to understand the abuse a victim is suffering in order to understand the fear, shame and guilt felt, focusing on their behavior and why a victim stays perpetuates the belief that the victim is responsible for the abuse. That is patently false. The abuser is causing harm. The abuser is always to blame. For a victim, admitting to family and friends that the abuse is happening is extremely difficult. The victim is, of course, afraid of the abuser because of what that person does. The victim is abused in more than one way, the forms of which include physical, sexual, emotional, economic, psychological, and stalking and or harassment, but they also face societal abuse as a result of judgment and stigma. Also part of the abuse is a campaign to control and demean, destroy the victim's self-confidence. Leaving is the most dangerous time for a victim. One study found in interviews with men who have killed their wives that either threats of separation by their partner or actual separations were most often the precipitating events that led to the murder. A victim's reasoning for staying with their abusers are extremely complex and, in most cases, are based on the reality that the abuser will follow through with the threats they have used to keep them trapped. The abuser will hurt or kill them, or they will hurt or kill the kids, or they will win custody of the children, or they will harm or kill pets or others, or they will ruin their victim financially. The victim knows the abuser best and knows fully the extent to which the abuser will go to maintain control. The victim is also fearful of how others will respond to the abuse, so it is important that friends and family understand the difficulties faced in escaping and what they can do to help the victim successfully leave. While there is significant change being made in society, it is only by overthrowing this whole oppressive system that women can be properly supported and the inequality of sexes and genders be done away with altogether. Only when we can all live as independent human beings, free from domestic drudgery and wage slavery, then can we really talk of freedom. Freedom for women, freedom for men, freedom of all gender minorities, and freedom from capital. Thank you for listening. I would like to thank my patrons for making this podcast possible and Candace Ludic in particular for providing a lot of the research on which this episode is based. Should you wish to support me, please subscribe to The Bipolar Feminist on Patreon or donate directly to Nikki Starfish on Coffee. See you next week for the final episode of the season and this year, in which I will be debunking myths about intersectional feminism.